Welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. Um, usually our friend and producer Hugo Lindgren is with us as well, but Hugo got both the booster shot and a flu shot over the weekend. Uh, we're recording this on a Monday morning, and it has knocked him out completely. Uh, but the plan for today's podcast was to have our friend Bob Greenlee on. So Bob and I uh, are still uh, going to do this podcast anyway. We'll try to do it without Hugo. Um, and we already knew what we wanted to talk about, so we'll uh, – We'll go through it. Hey, Bob. Hey, how are you? I'm good. How was your weekend? Wonderful. Thanks. Wonderful. Good. And you have a birthday coming up this week. Happy birthday. I do. Thank you for remembering. Tomorrow, right? Yeah. Yes, that's exactly yeah, right. I'm super excited. 47? 47. Yes. Big four seven. Okay. Um, so I have four topics for us to discuss. Uh, DAOs, based on the piece that you wrote for TechCrunch last week, um, China and kind of U.S. military policy. Uh, hunger grants that from Tusk Philanthropies and the concept of private rights of action. Why don't we start with DAOs? You wrote a piece last week for TechCrunch uh, basically saying why you think DAOs uh, are not a good thing. So let's just start at the basic. What are DAOs? Sure. A DAO is a decentralized autonomous organization. Effectively, what that means is it's an organization for which the governance is fully out is fully done on an algorithm. So basically, think of it as a company or a group that's run by a computer program. Okay. And why are people excited about them? I, look, honestly, I have no idea. But from what I can read and from what I can understand, uh, I think there are three things that people look at and think of this as potentially the future. The first is governance under a DAO would be completely transparent. Before you join an organization, you know exactly what the rules are going to be. You know exactly how they're going to be enforced. And because of the decentralized nature of a blockchain governance, you know that they will be enforced impartially. And people love the idea of that because that means that it has, the, you know, it has two benefits. One, you have the ability to reduce corruption or self-interest in people who are making decisions or, or are taking actions. And you also have the ability to reduce kind of a single point of failure where somebody who would need to take an action is away from the switch. So what are tangible examples of DAOs to help people listen to this kind of understand what it is we're talking about? Sure. So I'll, I'll give you a good example. Recently, um, you know, there's the this NFT craze, the idea that NFTs are being placed up um, and being sold in marketplaces for auctions. There was a copy of the Constitution. Um, that was recently put up for auction, and a group of crypto enthusiasts decided to create a DAO that would work together to collectively bid on and seek an opportunity to buy the U.S. Constitution. They raised a ton of money for it, um, and they had a governing organization and a governing body for the sole purpose of owning and managing the use of this copy of the Constitution. And so what's wrong with it? You, you, you wrote in TechCrunch how much you dislike DAOs. Why? So, well, the, so the Constitution group shows the first big problem with it, which is when auction came up, although they had raised even um, arguably the most money for it, they ultimately lost in the bidding for the, for the Constitution. Ken Griffin, who's the owner of Citadel and obviously a huge troll of crypto people, uh, put in enough money individually to buy the last, last copy of the Constitution. Um, that in itself is funny, but the the bigger issue for the organization is after the group lost, there was a question of what happens now. 
Unfortunately, the Dow didn't have rules for what happened if it didn't win. So everyone who invested in the organization was then left wondering, what do we do? And the answer is then you need to find some type of a consensus to make decisions where decisions aren't pre-programmed. So, so your, your point is that smart contracts can arguably be more efficient. They can arguably uh, at least make transactions go more smoothly. But ultimately, anything that requires multiple people uh, to be involved means that there has to be some level of human interaction and consent uh, and discussion, and DAOs can't, prevent, can't eliminate that. Exactly. So the problem with DAOs is they can't handle edge cases. And the reality with business organizations is they're all edge cases. Um, we've had, you know, transparency or efforts at transparency and organizational rulemaking, arguably for like 4,000 years, ever since we've had the first law code. The challenge is always there are a lot of tricky cases that come up about when to enforce the laws that you have and when to know that the laws that you have or the rules that govern an organization should go into effect, and honestly, when they shouldn't. And the example I gave in my article is, you know people should come into work every day. And you know it's generally speaking in everyone's best interest, but there are some days when people are stressed out or something's gone on in their lives that is beyond what could be predicted by a DAO or a computer algorithm where you need to figure out or tell your people that they need to just take a day off and stay home because they will be better in the long run. So, so when we get to a situation where a DAO can predict and accurately tell that, then I'm all for them. I just, I think that's going to be a long time in the future. So, so why does this all matter? Why does a publication like TechCrunch run a column from you talking about why you don't like DAOs and, and what, why is it a big deal at the moment of the tech world? I, I think it's a big deal in the moment of the tech world because people are looking at this idea of Web3 and the, the value of radical decentralization and autonomous trust generation and looking at all of the possible use cases. And I think at the very, not the bleeding, bleeding edge, but at, at one end of the fringe are a group of people who say, this can solve a lot of problems for us, particularly in, in fairness for when DAOs work best, let's say investors, right? And investors are saying, I don't want to have to trust management to make self-interested decisions on something that I am deciding whether to invest in based on what they've committed. That, you know, for a simple organization, that could be really transformative because then, you know, as an investor, people will invest in the people will execute on the business plan that you laid out for them. Now, if you're an early stage investor like we are and you're betting on a team to solve problems as they come up, this is probably not for you. But if you want a cheap ETF traded hedge, you know, an ETF traded fund, you're certainly going to get your fees down, which will be interesting for a lot of people. So talk a little about DeFi and the concept, where DAOs fit into it. And generally speaking, is DeFi something that you think is, is coming and that matters? Or is it just the kind of thing that people within our little world get excited about? I think, I think DeFi is not just coming. I think DeFi is here. I think over the last 12 to 18 months, we've started seeing a lot of organizations that have increasingly built the rails to allow for transactions to take place more smoothly on a blockchain. One of the companies that we're working with, Tacit, is, is going to announce in the near future a set of rails that could radically increase the, the kind of the transparency and the ease of transmissibility of digital assets. And I think that's, by and large, really good. 
I mean, one of the problems that we've had forever in the financial system is that um, because of entrenched actors and otherwise, fees are too high. People don't have a transparent ability to see what they're trying to do. And I think in that respect, the ability for decentralized finance to effectively um, leverage banks into behaving more effectively and efficiently is a great thing. Um, I, I think taking it too far and saying we can have human organizations that are governed and and human endeavors that are governed by algorithms is is science fiction. But I think in places where it can have tangible economic benefits, it's gonna we're gonna see the benefits of them in the next few years alone. And, and the benefit is really just in efficiency. Or you know, right now I think a lot of people would say they feel like they live at the mercy of the financial system that that the banks and the other institutions are impossible for them to influence and they just have to sort of take whatever they give them. Does this ultimately lead to the end of that feeling in those institutions or is it just a matter of making things slightly more effective and efficient? So from my perspective, I think it's just the latter. I think you will see things that will become more efficient and more effective because you have the ability to create increased transparency and create increased competition. This idea that you're at the mercy of somebody else I think in the I think in the real world, there's always going to be somebody that you're at the mercy of, even if you're at, you know, dealing with a decentralized organization that's making decisions, you're still at the mercy of whatever governance system they have. And proponents of DAOs would like to say, well, that could just be an algorithm. But at that point, then you're at the mercy of whoever wrote the algorithm. um, And you're just pushing the, you know, that feeling of, um, you know, powerlessness down the road. And I think the bigger question for all of us is, how do we live with the sense of powerlessness? How do we live with, you know, what we, you know, what we can and can't control? Um, You know, that's, I think that's a personal decision. What I would care about personally is, am I getting the best possible deal if I'm already powerless? Right. Yeah, sorry. Abby was in the school play, which was this weekend, and it was the trial by Kafka and mm-hmm. you know I went to a couple of performances and and by the second one where I kind of already seen it in my mind was starting to really wander started thinking about kind of DeFi and DAOs and and, and if you take the logical conclusion of Kafka's world where effectively the, the system is in charge of everything and is everything um, regardless of, of individual rights or autonomy um, it, it's sort of a corollary of that so you know in in a way the logical conclusion of DAOs kind of scares me a bit. Yeah, look, here's how I've been thinking about it, which is there's a question of how people really view people, right? We all agree that we're effectively social animals, or most of us, let's say. But there's a question, there's, I think, a fundamental question for me, which is, do we think that we're social animals because we want to be? Or do we think that we're social animals because we have to be? And if you believe that we're social animals because we have to be, then you start to like DAOs a lot more because yeah. you say, well, maybe this makes it easier for us to do what we want to do without having to be social. Yeah, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, do you know the Grant study at Harvard? Do you, you familiar uh, with that? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So, so for the listeners, um, for those who don't know, the, one of the most famous studies that I've ever seen um, in, I think, in the 19... 19- 40s, Harvard University tried an experiment where they took a, a group of men from their sophomore class and a group of working class young men from Boston who were the same age, so figure everyone's in around kind of 19 or 20, um, and tracked them for the rest of their lives, kind of good and bad. And some people really succeeded. John F. Kennedy happened to be one of the people in that group. Some people did not. Some people from 
uh, the working class group became incredibly successful. Some people from Harvard totally failed. But the thing that they ultimately determined, kind of regardless of your education or your income, was the factor that most contributed and impacted happiness was relationships. People who had happy, close relationships, and that could be marital, could be children, family, friends, colleagues. There's a lot of ways to define it, but people who had that were significantly happier than people who didn't, which would then argue to you um, that if, if people are social animals because we want to be, um, not because we have to be in order to transact, you know, banking things. Um, then the grand study would say that it's really the former, which would, I think, take a lot of the use case out of DAOs and even DeFi in general. Yeah, completely agree. So let, let's pivot to China. Um, there was a recent story that China has an agreement with Equatorial Guinea. Equatorial Guinea is a country on the western coast of Africa where it could potentially build a naval base. And the reason why people think this is significant is it would be their first naval base in the Atlantic Ocean. So they would be closer to the U.S., more likely to fire warheads uh, from there and things like that. Um, I have to say I didn't quite get all the fuss and hoopla here because – and tell me where I'm wrong, but I, I just – I don't know that it matters where China has a naval base. I, I'm not sure that the next war is fought – with ships and tanks. Uh, I think it's being fought right now with DJI drones and TikTok. And I think China's more than already permeated our borders. Um, and sure, China could potentially have more effectiveness with a nuclear strike from the Atlantic Ocean than, than from Beijing or wherever their missiles are. But you know, once people start firing nukes, I think we're all done for anyway. So it doesn't really make that much of a difference. So it seems to me that everyone's fighting the last war. And the army, because they want to maintain their resources and they want to maintain their supremacy, um, you know, loves to make army military a huge deal about this stuff. But I, I think it's really overblown. What do you think? So I think the question for me comes back to what does China really want? Not just what do they want with this base? I mean, sure, everybody wants a base everywhere they can, if they can support it, and China certainly can. But what do they want? Um, I guess I assume, and I'm operating under the assumption that what China wants is kind of what the U.S. Is, has had de facto for the last 80 years, which is the ability to, you know, to portray economic power all over the globe and to run its, you know, kind of run its economic businesses everywhere. And if I'm them, sure, I would like to have this base because what I care most about is making sure that my shipping containers and my ships get, you know, get to markets wherever they want to be without any interference and anybody having the ability to um, to mess with them, including the U.S. So I can see why China would want it if that's that, what that's, that's, that's an want. economic argument, not a military. I mean, I understand I, that they, they come together at various I, points. I, I think, look, this is – I don't think that China is like, you know, the Mongol horde or Napoleon or whoever. I don't think China wants to govern the entire world. I think China wants to make its people as rich as possible by extracting resources from everywhere else. So I think for the Chinese Communist Party leadership, the economic argument is largely what they care about. And, and I would at least argue that the way you win in today's society is both from a, a cybersecurity penetration standpoint and an influence standpoint, right? And, and if you look at Right now, the vast majority of drones made in the world are made by DJI, which is a Chinese company. Um, and TikTok, as we both know from our own kids, is the dominant or one of the few dominant social media platforms. So it seems to me 
they already have the penetration and influence inside of our borders. And we sh- if, if we're worried about China, we should be a lot more focused on that and a lot less worried about you know a, a naval base across the Atlantic. I completely agree. And I think we should be a lot more worried about the TikToks, the DJIs, the you know the information warfare that's taking place. So just off the cuff then, and, and we didn't prep for this, but if, if I gave you the magic wand and said, okay, Bob, better regulate TikTok and DJI, what, what would you do? The number one thing I would do is I would force both of those entities to have a U.S. subsidiary that we could watch closely and w- watch closely for data activity, for transfers, et cetera, and not allow kind of a direct Chinese entity to, to conduct business in the U.S. I mean, I think you want them to have a U.S. presence that we can control. So your wife, Lucy, it's, her family's from Taiwan. They still have family there. You guys got married in Taiwan. Um, if China decides to eventually invade Taiwan, should the U.S. intervene in a military way? Yes. Why? Uh, I mean, beyond all the reasons that you just said. Yeah, put those aside for a second. Right. <laughs> right? Because I would like my kids to go to Taiwan at some point without having to get a Chinese visa. Um, no, I, I do think that the U.S. should defend Taiwan. I think the U.S. – I am – and this is me personally – I believe in protecting democracies globally. If you have a functional democracy and you have an authoritarian government that is planning to take democratic rights away from people in that democracy, I think the I think the US and I think every other democratic company or country, excuse me, should stand up uh and protect that democracy. And and, and you would do that at the risk of fighting with another superpower that's arguably as strong as we are, um, and could inflict real, real damage. So, so if millions of American lives could be lost in defending Taiwan, you still think it's worth it? First of all, the war is already happening, as you said, with DJI and TikTok and yeah. you know economic yeah. warfare. So, I th- I think the idea that there's not going to be a war, a clash of interests, is a is a false dichotomy. Um, if that's the case, and if you assume that China understands that that's the case. Um, then I think you do. I think you have to. I think you have to do that, um, both to show where our principles lie. Do I think that we need another Afghanistan? I don't. But if you assume that the next war is going to be fought with drones and without the use of human human resources, then yes, I think we should. I, I don't think we should commit people on the ground to Taiwan. But I think I would commit a number of other resources. So you would you would you uh, send missiles into China to defend Taiwan? I would. I would. And I if would. That meant missiles then coming back into the U.S. You'd be okay with that? I I think we need to take the I think we need to take the risk on that, and I think we need to know that we're the kind of country that's going to act on our principles because that's the kind of country that's that's what we would want for ourselves. So then, in that theory, we should be sending all kinds of troops and military resources to the Ukraine right now. Right? I would once again. I'm not pro sending troops, but I am pro sending resources to the Ukraine for the same reason. It's a it's a democracy that is being that is having its uh, its people sovereignty infringed. I mean, let's let's take a step back. Do I care about the governments themselves? No. Do I care about people who have made a choice to want to live in a certain way? And have other people who have no who have no interest in their best interests, and mainly in extracting labor resources and prestige, and making their lives awful. Yeah, I would like to protect those people. 
Okay. Um, where do you think the American people are on this? And is there even such a thing anymore as the American people, or is it just now two halves and where's each half on it? Uh, I think it's not two halves because I think both parties are splintered on foreign policy. I think the reality is that both parties realize that foreign policy is far less interest is far less important in getting votes than domestic policy. So that splinter continues. Um, and I think that it's always been the case that a majority of the American people are non-interventionist, but a minority are inter foreign interventionist. I think a minority have always been. Um, and I think, but I think that minority, generally speaking, tends to be towards the elites that are disproportionately represented. So there's always, I mean, there's been a tension about this issue for 200 years, right? Right. So, so how do you respond to this, which is the argument of our country is not in a position to tell anyone what to do about anything. We have a completely broken and dysfunctional and polarized government. Um, we can't even convince most a lot of our own citizens to take the vaccine. We have massive problems with things like guns. Uh, we have terrible schools. We have a broken healthcare system. We can't figure out our policy on immigration. We can't take that many real steps to combat climate change. Um, we have a totally broken country and society uh, who just just came out from four years of Donald Trump, who's got to be one of the more immoral leaders in the history of the last couple hundred years. So you, you put all that together. Why should China or Russia or anyone else care what we think about anything? Um, couple, I mean, first of all, I, I think I dispute the premise a little bit. Um, I would say we have a relatively dysfunctional government in a lot of ways. But um, I think they should, I think two things. One, if we want to have a more functional country uh, and we want to have a more functional government, then I think we do need to prove that we can you know, live by our commitments and our commitments are towards upholding freedom and better lives for people. And if we're not living towards those commitments, what's it worth, right? Um, but I think the second question on it is why should, why should Russia and China care about what we do? Well, we have to make them care. And that's if, we, if people know that we aren't going to engage one way or the other, then they certainly won't care. Yeah, it would. I I think that's right. And look, I'm I'm being a little extreme here for the purpose of playing devil advocate on a podcast, but I, I do still just worry or, or wonder that for a country that has as many challenges we're facing right now. And by the way, not not just today, but but historically too, right? Like, yes, we are a country that probably saved the world in World War II, although we didn't actually do anything until we were physically attacked. Um, and we are a country that has exported. A lot of good ideas and values, whether it's technology or facets of democracy and the Bill of Rights or everything else. But, you know, we're also a country that enslaved people for hundreds of years and a country that has committed all kinds of egregious acts. And so I, I don't know. I just maybe I'm more of an isolationist than, than I'd like to admit. But I, I just worry about committing U.S. lives and military resources, one, to wars that I'm not sure we can really be effective in, um, and two, I just don't know that we're really in a position to tell anybody else what to do. I Look, I, didn't, I don't think we're necessarily in any position greater than anybody else to tell other people what to do, although I certainly don't think that the Chinese Communist Party or Vladimir Putin are people who I would like to tell me what to do. So, yeah. Yeah. you know, if you have the choice, I think I would take the system we have. Um, look, I, I also think just as a pure political question, there's a real divide between resources and lives. And I would say the U.S. people 
are more than willing to spend larger amounts of resources than we give them credit for, up to but not including putting lives at risk. Yeah. So whatever we're able to do technologically to fight these wars, I think people would say have at it, and you know maybe we would pay more taxes for that. Resources meaning cost. Yeah, drones. Um, you know, right. other types of warfare, other types of weaponry and technology where we're not putting human lives. Right. But are, are we always willing to do that because we're being told the deficit spending doesn't matter and ultimately the U.S. will never can borrow as much money as it wants, will never have to pay it back. And so if, if, ever, if all the money that you're spending uh, is said to be cost free, although obviously the current inflation rate would, would disprove that. Um, but if, if that's your belief, and that spending trillions and trillions of dollars on stimulus plans and infrastructure plans and you know social kind of fabric plans um, are, are all the right thing to do, then sure, anything that doesn't theoretically threaten American lives, you might as well do. Um, but I don't think it's because people are choosing to say, I will sacrifice um, my ability to deduct my state and local taxes on my federal returns in return for being able to, to then send resources to the t Taiwan and the Ukraine. They're just saying it doesn't really cost me anything in real life that I can tell. Um, I, do you really think people would make those choices if they actually had to give up something that that impacts their daily lives? I I think that almost always people will make a sacrifice that just involves money for something they believe in. I mean, this is like saying it's like volunteering, right? Will somebody give you know twenty dollars? versus an hour of their time to volunteer. People will give the $20 a hundred times more than they give the hour of their life, right? Um, and that's just that's just people. And I do think, I, I have yet to see someone effectively voted out of office for, for raising deficits because of, you know, military spending against China. When yeah, I see it, then I'll believe true. it. You yeah. know, what, do I see people getting voted out of office for people getting killed in Afghanistan? Yeah, I do see that. So that's my calculus. Yeah, fair enough. Um, this morning, Tusk Philanthropies announced its 2022 state grants uh, around hunger. Um, Tusk Philanthropies is one of the many things here that reports up to you. Um, tell me, what are we awarding and who did we award it to and what's the point of all this? Sure. So we are awarding grants in seven states um, to run effectively six campaigns this year and one campaign that we're getting started on, on towards next year all around eliminating or starting the path to eliminate youth hunger. Um, and I can go through each of the states um, if everyone is interested. We were working in Vermont, Massachusetts, New Jersey, Kentucky, DC, Maryland, and Nevada. Um, and the goal, the goal is really pretty simple in what we are trying to do, which is we want to help states pass laws that make it easier to take advantage of federal resources and opportunities to end youth hunger. Um, and we think the best way to do that is through universal school meals, because they're cheaper and more effective to administer, and because most kids go to school. So as a result of that, um, unless you're you know, trying to dive into the homeschool population, this is the cheapest and easiest way to get the most kids fed. And we think that the cheapest and easiest way to do that is to maximize resources available by taking advantage of greater federal resources. So, so far, what proof do we have that our approach works? So we've been doing this for about six years now. And over the course of time, we have, we have seen, I want to say, 14 states in which we've won. We're winning at 88% of the, the states that we're engaging in. Um, we know that the model 
of finding states and finding groups in states where there is a policy change that could be made to increase the number of students who are receiving uh, meals or increase the access to, to free or reduced lunch um, is something that can pass. Um, and we just need to find those states that are ready to get a piece of legislation that will get more kids fed across the line, and we will help push it over the line. So do, do you see a world where universal school meals, and just so the listeners are clear, what that would mean is one day a world where everyone at every school, K through 12, gets breakfast and lunch every single day, free of cost, free of stigma, free of questions, Um do you see a world where where that eventually happens because of this? And if so, what will it take on our end to pull it off? I do see a world where that happens. I think one of the reasons why I see that is people will realize over time that like a lot of things, because this is an easy thing that we're already doing, it's easier to administer and it's a great and effective way to get policy done. What is it going to take? It's going to take a couple of things. It's going to take just dogged effort on our part and on all of the advocates who are working across the country's part to pass these kind of universal school meals laws in state after state. What we see is that as states like early states like Maine, California, uh, potentially this year, Vermont, D.C., Maryland, start to pass this legislation that people will see and that other uh, legislators and policymakers will see that it's an affordable way to do this that doesn't kill their budgets. Um, and once and that people, you know, ordinary middle class people who now don't have to worry about providing for school lunch or thinking about school lunch can then spend that money on other things like childcare or transportation where they may need it. Um, they may see that this is a popular item, both from a political standpoint and effectively for people's lives. Um, and then you start to see more momentum. Absolutely. Let, let me read out real fast who, who the grants are going to. So congratulations to these groups. Uh, Hunger Free Vermont, we are, as you just mentioned, working on legislation that would create universal school meals in Vermont. We passed uh, the Senate last year and we're going to pass the House, hopefully this coming January. Um, the second is to the Massachusetts Law Reform Institute and the Greater, Greater Boston Food Bank. I'm not sure why I had just had trouble saying that. Um, same thing. We're in the second year of a two-year campaign that will provide access to hungry college students. Uh, third is hunger-free New Jersey, and the idea is they, they are increasing income eligibility for free school meals. And I will say that in New Jersey, Governor Murphy has been a, a really great partner with us on hunger. Um, Congressman Gottheimer has been really great, a great partner to us. And so I, th I think we've got some real opportunity there. Uh, and I think we're actually talking to Senator Booker about this in the near future as well. Um, feeding Kentucky, and that's explicitly going to allow uh, breakfast after the bell, which means that, that breakfast can be served during instructional time, during home, homeroom as opposed to before school. Um, DC Hunger Solutions, that would be a universal school meals campaign. And I will say that D.C. is now the one um, city in this country where we're running both legislation to make it possible for everyone to vote on their phones and uh, to create universal school meals. So um, hopefully we'll, it'll work. But if, if we somehow succeed in both of those, I would say in some ways, uh, at least from a touch philanthropy standpoint, the District of Columbia is our favorite jurisdiction. Um, and the final two. Maryland Hunger Solutions, that would be Universal School Meals, as you mentioned, and the Food Bank of Northern Nevada, and that would be to eliminate the cost of reduced price meals for over 100,000 kids. So basically, don't make kids pay for their school breakfast or lunch, just give it to them for free. Final topic, private rights of action. So 
the Texas abortion bill, as probably everybody knows, one of the provisions of it is it allows private individuals to sue uh, abortion providers and others for potentially violating the law, which in Texas right now would be uh, abortions granted after six weeks of pregnancy. Governor Newsom of California, I thought very cleverly, uh, responded to that over the weekend by proposing the same idea of, of a private right of action, um, but against uh, gun dealers and gun stores uh, to people who are the victims of gun violence or the family members of victims of gun violence. What do you think of this trend of, of private rights of action being extended to, to citizens? I personally, I hate it. I hated the Texas bill. Um, I, I, you know, while I, uh, while I laud what Governor Newsom's trying to do, and it, it is one of these things that Justice Kavanaugh suggested would very soon follow if we allowed private right of action to continue, um, you know, I, I don't think that allowing vigilante justice or vigilante access to the legal system is a, is a trend that's going to be good in the long term for us. Well, um, but but, but it'll take, be effective. Yeah, I mean, so, so we talk a lot in this podcast about the repeal of Section 230. I think everyone knows what that is, but it's the provision in the Telecommunications Decency Act that gives platforms like Facebook um, liability for the content posted on their platforms, um, which is in part why you've seen their growth, but also why you've seen the growth of so much toxicity is because the platforms are actually financially incentivized to have really toxic content as opposed to prevent it. Um, if Section 230 were repealed, the reason I've been in support of that is, is I feel like in some ways the private plaintiff's bar in finding the right ways to sue the platforms for content if they no longer have that liability protection will ultimately be more effective in reshaping the platform's uh, approach to content moderation and mitigation than if a panel of regulators and academics and government officials try to do it. Um, it, it do you agree with that? And if that's true, and if it can be more effective, um, obviously I don't support the, the Texas abortion bill, but, but tell me why the California plan couldn't help reduce gun violence. Oh, I, I think it absolutely will help reduce gun violence. Although gun violence, unlike abortion, is, is a situation where victims should have already had a right under, under law to sue, right? I mean, this is the biggest difference between the Texas abortion law, where anyone without any actual harm being done to them has now has a right of action to sue against someone that they believe has violated the law civilly, um, and, the and the California law, where people who actually have damages, is that lack of damages, right? And that's the, just as a lawyer, the part that I really dislike is this idea that um, if you don't actually have a damage yourself, you can sue on behalf of others. I mean, it just, it opens up a lot of sticky questions over the, over the course of time and unintended consequences. But do I think that it will make it harder for or less that gun manufacturers will have less incentive to sell in California or to sell in general because things may end up in California. Yeah, absolutely. There's definitely a chilling effect. And given, despite what Justin Kavanaugh said, what we're, I think he said it uh, with a somewhat of a warning, but he also voted to basically uphold the Texas law as is, given that it doesn't seem like the Texas law is going to be struck down in court, um, or at least by the Supreme Court, then do you think that we are about to embark on a whole world of private rights of action sort of encapsulated in legislation to either as a tit for tat or just to try to change the way that we enforce certain laws? I think like everything that people do, that there's there are waves and fads. And in the law and in legislation, absolutely. If people see that the Texas private right of action strategy is being upheld by the court and it's working and the court um, does not 
uphold the rights of abortion providers to to overturn this, which is you know which is more difficult but possible. Um, then yeah, I think we will see it everywhere. I think any place in which we think that there's a um, let's say I, what's the word that people use for this um, a public problem, you know, a tragedy that commons something that's not being solved. Um, by the current system, then the idea of having kind of judicial vigilantism and private rights of action will be the kind of the go-to tactic until people start to realize that it's, you know, has unforeseen problems. And then those unforeseen problems will lead to the next wave of thought on this issue. There we go. All right, Bob, I think that's about the time we have, but thank you for joining us. Happy birthday, happy holidays, and we will talk to you again soon. Thank you very much. Thanks again. Thank you.